Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 31. It's on page nine of your bulletin or projected above. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that have, that have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Shiloh. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Dixie. I appreciate it. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin earlier. Uh, you can grab that now, and there's a spot on there to jot down three things that I want you to listen specifically for that I'm going to mention. One is Michael Jordan. Uh, the second is the game of tag. And then thirdly is a quote from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. So Michael Jordan, tag, and, uh, and Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this great psalm together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks uh, for this, your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. And Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us because you love us, because you want us to know you, your son and spirit. And so, Father, we pray this afternoon that by your spirit working with your word, you would open our eyes to behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus, that we'd be captivated by him, that we'd be drawn to him, that we would love him even as we taste and see the love that he has for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. I heard a, uh, heard a pastor mention Michael Jordan's 2009 Hall of Fame speech uh, this week, and um, some of you will probably be familiar with this Hall of Fame speech. In some ways, it was, uh, it was similar to what you would expect in Hall of Fame speeches, where he gives thanks to uh, those who'd helped him get to where he was, he gives some jokes along the way, has, of course, some moments of, of tearful reflection. Um, one thing you don't typically hear in Hall of Fame speeches that, that were in his speech uh, was him taking shots at people who didn't believe in him. Uh, so he's calling people out uh, who had doubted him uh, throughout his career. Uh, that's what he did. So he calls out his high school coach who wouldn't start him as a sophomore. Uh, he comes at these uh, veteran NBA players who froze him out in the first NBA All-Star game. Um, and then he comes after the Bulls GM as well. He had this long bad relationship with him. Um, Maybe most famously what came from his speech though is the now ubiquitous crying Jordan meme, um, which is all over the place. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it later and you will be overwhelmed with it. Um, But uh, here's the whole point of this. Uh, At the very end of his speech, um, he talks some in the the last section about what the game of basketball meant to him. And uh, and so here's what he says. The game of basketball has been everything to me. My refuge, my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. And so he says there that when his life was difficult, when things are hard, and and earlier in the speech he's alluded to when he had lost his father, which was so, so hard for him, basketball was his refuge. And I think if you think about this, it actually makes a lot of sense that he would describe the game this way, this game that, that he knew so well that he was so unbelievably good at would be the natural place where he would go when times are tough. And if you you think about this, like it's not hard to imagine that if you're Michael Jordan and you step on that court, you feel completely in control. You step into a place that is familiar, that's stable. And and I mean, it's especially true when you're literally the best player in the world, right? But basketball was his refuge. It was his safety, it was his place of comfort, it was his place of peace in some of the hardest moments in his life. Here's why I mention that. I think that's actually a pretty good picture of something that every single one of us does. And here's what I mean. Uh, All of us have these certain things that that, that we do, uh, places we go, even uh, mentally or or, uh, actually, uh, habits that we indulge, practices that we engage in when things get hard. And that could be a sport like basketball. It could be exercise or working out. Um, It could be work itself. It could be social media. It could be Netflix. It could be college football. Uh, It could be some kind of uh, substance, another drink, pills, something like that. Things that in some way 
and in some respect, become a refuge for us. And it really could be anything at all. And so um, if you're with us last week, I mentioned our dog Tilly. What she does during a thunderstorm is she goes directly to the closet. That closet is her refuge, right? And so whatever it is for you, and again, it could be all kinds of different things. Your refuge is the place that you go when things get hard. And some of those things are, are, are healthier than others, of course. So here's where we bump up against this psalm. David uses the language of refuge in this psalm. But he uses it to, to describe the Lord. And this is actually a really common image for the Lord uh, throughout the Bible, specifically in the Psalms, though. It's used more, though, in Psalm 31 than in any other Psalm. David calls the Lord his refuge. He calls the Lord his strong fortress. He calls the Lord his rock. And, and that might, uh, you might be tempted to think of that as sort of this uh, poetic, sort of religious Bible language. Here's why it's so important. To, to see this though, uh, David was in some kind of serious danger. And as usual, um, I shouldn't say as usual, but as is often the case in the Psalms, we don't know exactly what the circumstances were. Um, it, it does appear that there are people that are literally coming after him, coming for his very life, plotting to take his life. And the effects of it are, are devastating on his, uh, his emotional and mental well-being and on his body itself. And it says as well that, that all these people are, are speaking evil against him as well. And so he's in this place where he is so weary. He's so beaten down by this relentless pressure, this relentless fear, this relentless danger that is all around him. And what his heart longs for more than anything else is a place of refuge. A place where he feels safe. A place where he feels some sense of rest. And so I think part of what's so amazing about this psalm, Psalm 31, is that it's actually right in the middle of that affliction, right in the middle of that, that distress, he comes to this place of incredible confidence and trust in the Lord. And it's, it's so prominent in this psalm that, that scholars actually have a really difficult time classifying what kind of psalm this is. Most say it's a lament, but it also has these elements of such confidence and trust that some say this is almost a psalm of confidence, but here's what I wanna say up front. It's not a psalm of confidence because what David has decided to do is pretend that his circumstances aren't that bad or they aren't that dangerous. He's not taking all of these hard and painful things in his life and just trying to like sweep them under the rug, pretend like they're not that bad. What he does is he's actually able to face those things head on and yet not be overcome by them. To the point where he can say in the last verse of this psalm, be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And so here's the question. How is he able to say that? And here's what we'll see. He can say that because he knows, he has experienced, he has tasted the abundant goodness and steadfast love of the Lord. He knows deep within himself, in his bones, that the Lord really is the rock of refuge for him. And because he knows that to be true, it, it literally changes his outlook on his entire life. And so um, here's the thing I wanna, I've said this almost every week that I've been up here talking about, preaching about a psalm. I, I wanna keep emphasizing this though. Uh, you can experience this very same thing. There could be a temptation to view this psalm as like, this is something that David does, not really accessible just to me as one who trusts in the Lord. That's not true. You can actually experience this kind of confidence, this kind of trust in the Lord 
even in the midst of circumstances where you feel like you're being undone. You can actually experience that. The question then is how? And so that's how I want to frame our time today is to ask this question. How can we take refuge in the Lord even in the midst of, in the language that David uses, our distress? How can we take refuge in the Lord? Four ways. So here's the first. Uh, It's by remembering his past faithfulness. By remembering his past faithfulness. You see this verses one through eight. So um, one of the keys to to understanding the Psalms and really understanding any kind of uh, Hebrew poetry in general is to pay attention to the images. And uh, the images of the Lord in this Psalm are some great ones. Like they're super descriptive. He says that the Lord is a rock of refuge. That the Lord is a strong fortress. And so uh, you you hear that and you immediately think of this place of safety and security. And the the actual image here is of a a, a rocky crag or or, or a ridge line that's high upon a cliff. And the advantage of that is that it puts you up above those who are trying to come after you. It's the high ground. It's the sturdy place that allows you to see everything that's coming at you and to be safe from it. And so kids, uh, what you might want to picture here is when you hear refuge is to, uh, to think about when you're playing a game of tag. And, and, and if you're playing a game of tag where you have a base, then you go to that base and you know as long as you're touching that base, nobody can come at you. All these people are coming after you. They can't get you when you're touching that base. That's what a refuge is. And if you look at verse two, David's praying that God would be that to him. And it's real interesting here that the reason he can pray that way is because he knows this is who the Lord has been in the past. And this is, uh, this is scattered all over uh, the first eight of these verses. I'm just gonna highlight a couple of ways that you see this. One is in verse three. He mentions the Lord's name. And that's a huge concept in the Bible as a whole. The name of the Lord goes all the way back to the Exodus, where this was the way that God revealed himself to Moses and to the people of Israel. It was as Yahweh. And um, this is not uh, just some sort of generic word for God. They they have that word, multiple words for, for God, actually, in Hebrew. This is a specific word. It's a specific name. It's this covenant name, and it's the name that was tied to this covenant promise that God had made to be a God to his people, and that these people uh, would be his people. And so every time this covenant name is used, it's this constant reminder of that promise. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Here's what's interesting about this as well. Uh, Because of this connection that God had based on this covenant name, this covenant promise that he'd made, his name and his reputation is at stake with what happens to his people. And so, in other words, if his people suffered or his people were defeated, then that says something about who he is because these are his people. And so so here's what David's saying here. He says, for your name's sake, he's appealing to that because of who you are as my covenant God, lead me and guide me. So that's one place here where David remembers and he actually appeals to the Lord's faithfulness. Second place I wanna highlight is verses seven and eight. Look back at verse seven. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And on the one hand, uh, you just read that as it stands by itself. And that is a beautiful statement. This beautiful statement that says, the Lord sees you in the hardest places in your life. That he's not blind to the suffering that you're enduring right now. 
But there's also this other echo that's happening here. It's another echo of the Exodus. So God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They're in captivity there. And they cry out to the Lord after all this time in slavery for God to rescue them. And here's what's said in in, uh, Exodus chapter two. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What's the point? The point is that part of the reason that David is experiencing this sort of confidence and this sort of assurance of God's goodness to him, even in this tough spot, is because he knows this is who God has always been. This is who God has been in the past, and it's the way that he's continued to reveal himself. He is a rock of refuge and a strong fortress, and he will always be that. And this is a huge point for us to remember in this place, that this is who your God is. Here's the hard thing about that. It is so easy to say what I just said, (laughs) that this is who God is. He's faithful to you. It is so hard, though, to believe that that is actually true and to remember that in a way that actually changes the way you live. And here's part of why that's true. Part of what sin has done to us is that it's actually made us forgetful people. It, it, It makes us a people who forget who God is and what it is that he's done. We actually just sang about this earlier. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And and here's the thing about that that beautiful line. Uh, That wandering and that forgetting goes all the way back. You could say it goes all the way back to the garden even. And forgetting the goodness, the grace, the kindness of God, even in the garden. Let me just point to one example of this though. Uh, Psalm 106, you could jot this down and go read it uh, maybe later today. Uh, It's this great Psalm that rehearses the way that God has redeemed his people. So it's it's pretty historic uh, in the way that it, it talks. But part of what you read over and over again is how Israel forgot the Lord. And that's the phrase that's used. So let me give two examples, verse seven. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. Verse 21, they forgot God their savior. We are a forgetful people. And so here's the question then. If we're to remember God's past faithfulness, we've got to have some way of remembering that faithfulness. And so there are all kinds of ways we can do this. Let me just suggest one way. Uh, And it's through worship. What happens here in worship is that God is actually counteracting that amnesia that has taken hold of our hearts. Because what happens every single week here is that we're in this place where we are reminded week after week of this good news of who God is, of what he's done for us in Jesus and what he continues to do for us in Jesus. This this, uh, remembrance of what it is that, that he's done for us that we've got to cling to, what you've got to be reminded of when you're going through it. So that's the first way that we can experience him to be a refuge in our suffering. It's, it's by remembering his past faithfulness. Uh, but there's something that's, that's really important here as well. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't be honest with how hard things really are. And you see this uh, secondly, uh, in our second point, that the way we take refuge in him is by pouring out our sorrow before him. By pouring out our sorrow before him. You see this in verses nine through 13. And so what, what David describes here is this experience of the distress that is now undoing him. So look at verses nine and 10. What he describes here, he says that these circumstances, this suffering, this distress is taking such a toll on him that it's, that it's wrecking him, not just mentally and emotionally, those doing that. It's also wrecking him physically. 
So take a look. He says his eyes have grown dim with grief. And it, uh, this could even mean that his eyes have become swollen with so much weeping. He says that his body and his soul have grown weak. He feels so much sorrow, so much sighing, that it begins to feel like his very bones are wasting away. And um, you know, there are times in the Bible where there are these sort of uh, phrases uses that don't immediately line up with the kind of thing we would say, but you know exactly what they mean. That's what's happening here. As my body and my bones waste away. And what might be worst of all about this is that everybody uh, all around him is abandoning him. So verses 11 and 12, he says, his neighbors see how wrecked he is and they hear all of what his enemies are saying about him and they want nothing to do with him because of it. Look at verse 11. I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me and that is so vivid that people see him on the street, they look the other way and they go to the other side. And that might sound harsh, but this is actually something that happens all the time. Where you see somebody's life who's falling apart and it may be because of some decisions that they've made themselves, maybe it's not that, but you know what other people have said about them, what they are saying about them, and you don't want anything to do with them. You avoid them because that is a total mess that I don't wanna be a part of. And so verse 12 summarizes all of this, and here's how the New English translation puts this. I am forgotten like a dead man no one thinks about. I am regarded as worthless like a broken jar. That's where David is. And throughout all of this, verse 13 says, his enemies are still plotting to take his life. And so this picture that you get here is of somebody who's coming apart at the seams and is completely alone in the midst of it. And I think there are a couple of important things to notice about this. One is to see that David is pouring out his sorrow before the Lord in a whole lot of detail. And part of the reason that I point that out is that this is not typically how we pray. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. I think one of the main ones, though, is that when you get into a spot when you are really suffering, like when you are really under it, the temptation is just to start to turn inward because you are so beaten down, you're worn out, you're exhausted. Maybe you are even embarrassed or ashamed by the kind of things you're going through because maybe it has something to do with some decisions that you did make. And so every part of you really just wants to make this stop. And so when you are in that place, pouring out your soul, the specifics of these sorrows that you're feeling is not at the top of the list. So why does David do this? David does this because he knows this is exactly what he needs to do. And this is exactly the one to whom he needs to go. And so he goes to God and he begs God to be merciful to them. And he does that because he knows, as verses seven and eight have said, that God sees him and he knows him in his sorrow. So that's one thing we need to see about this. Uh, the other thing that, that the reason this is important to see is that this prayer of lament in verses nine through 13 uh, is not incompatible with his prayer of confidence in verses one through eight. You might be tempted to think that like these are two different sections that have been pulled together. Actually, some people think that about this Psalm. I don't think that's what's going on here. These two are intimately bound up together. And this is actually the way psalms of lament work over and over again. Here's how. It's because David knows of the Lord's past faithfulness 
that he can now pour out his sorrow before the Lord because he knows that the Lord is the one who can actually do something about it. And so that's the second way that we take refuge in the Lord is by pouring out our sorrow before him. Thirdly, we take refuge in the Lord by entrusting our lives into his hands. By entrusting our lives into his hands. So uh, this is verses 14 through 18. David's just poured out all of his anguish. And if you notice in verse 14, there's this change. So one commentator uh, calls this a pivot. So in the midst of that sorrow, of that anguish, what he does is he entrusts himself to the Lord. He, he pivots from this very real sorrow of his circumstances to the equally real hope of God's care. And again, this is one of those spots where I mentioned earlier, this can be the kind of trust we can have. And so the question is, how is that possible? How is he able to do that? How can he go from this place of such sorrow, such anguish, such lament, and then turn that to the Lord and entrust it to him? I think there are a few, a few reasons, a few reasons that he's able to do that. Um, one is this, he can do this because he knows that Yahweh is his God. And so did, did you notice how personal uh, the language is in verses 14 and 15? Notice the way that he's speaking to the Lord. He says, you are my God. And so this isn't some kind of cold, rote prayer request that's kind of thrown out at some distant and personal God. This is the language that, that David uses of a, a deeply personal pr prayer to this God that he knows and loves, one that he can entrust himself to. So that's one reason. He can do this secondly because of the Lord's sovereign care. And so he says this in verse 15, and this is one of the most beautiful verses in this psalm. My times are in your hand. And that's actually pretty similar to what he prayed in verse five. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. And this is one of those beautiful images in the Psalms where David could have said something like, you are sovereign. And he does say that in other places, right? The Bible does speak that way. But what David says instead here is that my times, every single thing about my life, my past, my present and my future are in your hand right now. You are holding them. You are holding me. And, and here's the thing about that. When you begin to believe that every part of your life is actually in the hands of a God who loves you, is actually in the hands of a God who is fundamentally for you, that is promised to be for you, then that's gonna begin to change the way that you view everything of your life. Especially those hard times, especially the suffering and the difficulty. So there was, a, uh, there was this article that um, made the, the rounds in RUF circles about 20 years ago now. Um, it was uh, written by uh, Paige Benton Brown. It was on singleness. So she had been uh, single for a good portion of her life. She's now married. And uh, there's this line in this article that has stuck with me since then. I actually say this pretty often. I might've said it to you before or paraphrased it. And I pray this often. But uh, here's what she says. She says, and she's talking about singleness. We can fill in uh, whatever circumstance we want here. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me. Because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. And here's the beautiful thing about what she's saying. If you put your faith in Jesus, then that applies to every single circumstance in your life that you can be absolutely certain that your God can never be anything but absolutely good and gracious to you. 
It is a cosmic impossibility that he could be anything but good to you because your times are in his hands. So that's the second reason to see this. Uh, thirdly, he can do this because of his steadfast, the Lord's steadfast love. And so this is what he says in verse 16. Save me in your steadfast love. And I, I mentioned the Hebrew word for the steadfast love a few weeks ago. It's this word that means the Lord's covenant loyal love. And David's appealing to that covenant promise again and saying, save me because you promised. Save me because this is who you are. So this is how David's able to do this. He's able to, to lift his eyes from this anguish of what's happening and give everything to the Lord because he knows who his God is and what his God has promised. And this leads us to the final way here now that we take refuge in him. And it's by giving thanks to him. By giving thanks to him. And so in, in verse 19, uh, the psalm takes another turn here. And uh, it's where David begins to praise God and give thanks to him. Here's what's interesting about this section. Uh, it's actually hard to know whether this was written after God had uh, answered his prayer and, and, and delivered him from these circumstances or whether David is so confident that the Lord will deliver him that he can pray as if it has already happened. I think it's probably the latter, but, but either way, his thanksgiving and his confidence here are wrapped up in his belief in God's goodness. Verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. David knows that it is God's goodness that actually gives him confidence that the Lord has and will be a refuge to him. That he really will protect him, that he really will love him, that he really will preserve him. Here's the thing about this. David was confident about this because he had seen the way that God had been faithful in the past. He had seen the way that, that uh, God had, had uh, made good on all of his promises to that. And he knows as well that God is going to be faithful to his promise in the future. Here's the thing about this though. What are you supposed to do when it's so, so hard to see that goodness actually working itself out in your life right now? What are you supposed to do uh, when you feel so under it that it's really hard to say, oh, how abundant is your goodness to me because it sure doesn't look like I can find it anywhere in my life. What do you do? Well, you look to the one whose final words were Psalm 31 verse five. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One who wholly and completely entrusted himself to his father as he suffered and died for you and for me. And here's the beautiful thing about this. The father heard his son pray this prayer. And he answered this prayer by three days later, raising him up from the dead. And so here's the promise for you. If you've put your faith in this resurrected Lord, then he's gonna do the exact same thing for you. That he will, sooner or later, raise you to new life. And this is why ultimately you can take refuge in him. The reason that you can in the, verse, in the words of verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage as you wait for him is because he has shown himself to be absolutely trustworthy. He's shown himself to be one that you can stake your entire life upon, one into whose hands you can commit your entire life. And there is no one and no thing 
that could ever snatch you out of his hand. That is the God who offers himself to you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God in whom we can take refuge. Lord, you know the ways that we're hesitant to do that, the ways that we are tempted to look elsewhere to find refuge. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us for those things, and we pray that you would take us into uh, to be near to you, to know you to be a rock of refuge, a strong fortress, and that we would do that by looking to your Son who gave himself for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.